When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> I literally had to fly in from outer space. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, is given away in the title, really. I'm here to talk of the stories of films, of how they came to be. I talk about development stories, marketing stories, production stories, post-production stories, release stories, all the bits and bobs that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love, just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The movies that I choose for this podcast, they tend to have a mainstream leaning to them, really. They're films i'm interested in or invested in to some degree i'm not really interested in punching down or going all snarky i just celebrate the fact that it's really hard to make a film and so i want to salute those who've done it really which um i think is probably enough preamble really i'm going to crack on with the first of the two films i'm talking about in this episode going to play you a clip from the trailer of it let's go back to 1995 and we're back in the world of james bond is the target. 72 hours ago, a secret weapon system was detonated over seven iron. And the threat is real. GoldenEye exists. A radiation surge that destroys everything with an electronic circuit. You can still depend on one man. I want you to find GoldenEye. Three. Find who took it. Two. And stop it. One. name's Bond. James Bond. That then was a clip from the trailer of 1995's GoldenEye, directed by Martin Campbell, screen story by Michael France, screenplay by Jeffrey Kane and Bruce Feirstein. Pierce Brosnan starring as James Bond 007, Sean Bean, Isabella Skorupko, Famke Janssen, Joe Don Baker, Judi Dench and Robbie Coltrane in the cast, along with Alan Cumming and Desmond Llewellyn and uh, Samantha Bond and Michael K- I could go on for quite a while with this cast list. Uh, a sizeable ensemble, as you would expect for a James Bond adventure. But then the expectations of a James Bond adventure were slightly different by the time we came to the mid-1990s that this film, and and it may seem hard to believe it looking back now, but this film was seen as a giant gamble, a real risk that the movies before it in the James Bond saga, the Timothy Dalton headlined The Living Daylights and Licence to Kill, I've covered the latter before in a Film Stories episode, well, they'd uh, got, uh, got their fair selection of fans of which I am one but when it came to the box office they weren't really setting the world alight 
Nonetheless, after the release of Licence to Kill, there was, I mean, there was speculation over whether Timothy Dalton would return eventually for a third outing as James Bond 007, but that was certainly the plan that he would, and it was pretty well known that an adaptation of The Property of a Lady uh, began in 1990. After the release of Licence to Kill, there had been decisions made, though, of a change of direction for the James Bond series. That Licence to Kill was seen as very dark, it had lost some of the wit. I, I guess and I, I think Licence to Kill is a real precursor to the Daniel Craig era. But there were key personnel changes that director John Glenn, who'd written, who directed the previous what four or five movies in the saga, he was moving on. Richard Maybaum, who'd written, a, a, I mean, the vast bulk of the James Bond screenplays, he wasn't going to return. And so the, 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 already the work was uh, the work was on just finding the people to sit in those to sit in those seats. Now I've drawn on a whole host of sources for researching this podcast. I, I should give credit to the excellent book "Some Kind of Hero: The Remarkable Story of the James Bond Films" by Matthew uh, Field, AJ Chowdhury. Uh, there are several interviews with Pierce Brosnan that I've, uh, I've been through. He recorded on YouTube earlier this year uh, a full, uh, effectively Pierce Brosnan commentary of GoldenEye. I think we the Squire magazine the DVD's got an awful lot in there and also surprisingly good making of book by Garth Pierce and I've drawn on those and a few other sources as well the plan then was to get James Bond back in front of the cameras in 1990 one year after the release of Licence to Kill I think this bit is all pretty well known that the, the idea was get get start filming 1990, release the film in late 1991. However, rights problems came in due to the, the perilous financial status of MGM that was going through sale. And this brought with it MGM being the parent company effectively of United Artists. This brought with it exactly questions over exactly where the bond rights sat. Uh, did they sit? Uh, how much of them sat with Danjak? How much with United Artists? How much with MGM? Eon Productions as well and it ended up with MGM doing a deal with Pathé for uh, in which uh, where Pathé and MGM effectively merged together um, after Pathé bought the MGM name up this went backwards and forwards Danjak sued Pathé um, they, the countersuits came in the, the bottom line of this this isn't a legal podcast the bottom line is the, the, the James Bond series remained in limbo until the end of December 1992 by this stage it had already been three years since we'd had a 007 adventure on the big screen and it was going to take a couple of years to to basically get a project up and running and this is where the questions in earnest started about whether timothy dalton would return to play james bond again that that, that, i mean it remained the plan and the film that was being put together had him in mind Uh, albert r broccoli the legendary producer of the james bond series he was still interested but effectively timothy dalton's contract was up and so he um, I mean the, the word came out from him that he he was considering moving on as well now a further personnel change was uh, was behind the scenes as well and I've just mentioned Albert R Broccoli known as Cubby uh, in the industry and he was at this point his health was starting to decline and he took a back seat which meant that Barbara Broccoli his daughter and Michael G Wilson were stepping up to be the lead producers on the new James Bond film this would be the first time really that they had they they had led the led a james bond film from the front they've been involved in lots of them but the casting of bond all the bits and bobs to do with it well that was now that that was now on their plate as well 
still, that doesn't mean that uh, Albert that Broccoli didn't still have real influence. And he actually asked Timothy Dalton to reconsider and retur- reconsider returning to the role of James Bond, which Dalton was, was tempted to do. But he'd say in more recent interviews, what ultimately put him off was the long term commitment that Cubby was looking for. And Dalton would finally announce his resignation of the role in April of 1994. So we're still what this is 16 months after the uh, rights problems had all been cleared up and there was no James Bond. That said, a lot of work had been done by that stage. That work on the script certainly was well underway and the Bond team wasted little time once legalities were sorted in getting that up and running. In came Michael France, who'd co-written Cliffhanger and he wanted the job. He'd had a meeting with the Bond production team in January 1993 and off the back of that, and he, he remained in regular contact with the Broccolis and with Michael G. Wilson, he penned the first draft of what would become GoldenEye, and that was ready in summer of 1993. And in, in putting the, the, the first draft of that script together, he did research trips to Russia, he interviewed KGB agents, and crucially, he was writing that screenplay with Timothy Dalton still in mind, nonetheless being steered towards a slightly lighter uh, feel with Goldfinger cited as a touch point, the kind of thing roughly to aim in the direction of. So that's aiming low, isn't it? Not. Now, once France had completed his screenplay, in came Geoffrey Kane to do a rewrite on it. Then in came Kevin Wade to do a polish on the rewrite that was done by Geoffrey Kane. But ultimately, it wasn't uh, it wasn't really tuned to uh, to where they wanted it to be until Bruce Feirstein came in, and he came in really late in the day. In truth, that he wasn't a, a massively experienced screenwriter. In that, none of his films to that point had uh, been given the green light. But he certainly uh, he had a take, uh, he had skill and he had an in with the Bond team as well. And in September 1994, he was hired by, uh, with, with the core of his pitch being to the being to the broccolis that the, the world has changed and Bond hadn't. And it's worth noting that in this in the years that Bond had been away, the, Bo- the Berlin Wall had fallen. The politics of Europe was changing fast. And and the the Reagan uh, Thatcher era was over, and 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 Bond really needed to reflect that. So it was a, a far bigger than expected rewrite that Bruce Fairstein ultimately did on Goldeneye. It was his suggestion, for instance, making uh, the character of M female, which paved the way to Judy Dench in this one. But also there's some really sizable work that he did even beyond that. Now, while the script was being written, there's a small matter of who's going to direct the thing. Well, John Glenn wasn't. That much was clear. And so they knew really that they, again, it went back to they wanted things to be a bit different this time. That United Artists, well, they brought in uh, an executive by the name of John Kelly, who was going to oversee uh, large parts of the project. Um, the studio, thus, United Artists, was pushing for a different tone. Um, people who were considered, Michael Caton Jones, who did Scandal and Memphis Bell, uh, he's just done a film called Our Ladies, which is coming up soon as well. It's been held up in limbo. That's really worth seeking out as well. Peter Medak done The Craze and Let Him Have It. And they were both said to be candidates for the James Bond role. But it was Callie who put forward the name of Martin Campbell. Now, Martin Campbell had sprung to prominence as a television director in the 80s. He made the hugely acclaimed TV series Edge of Darkness, for instance, which he also brought to the big screen uh, sometime later. But what really also gravitated them to 
to him was a prison escape movie of the early 90s that wasn't the mighty fortress i love fortress no it was no escape starring ray liotta remember that one and what what Callie was taken by was the fact that Campbell had taken a $20 million budget and made the thing look a lot more expensive than it was. And this goes back to the, the, the challenge that they had with GoldenEye in that the world the, the world of cinema had changed. Bond was had no right with a new film to be a huge event, certainly not in the way that we've seen it now and the way it had seen in the past. Bond had to earn its place again. And so the budget was... I mean, it wasn't cheap, but it was going to be done on a $60 million budget. And that was relatively modest by mid-90s standards, certainly if you're talking about blockbuster cinema as well. And that, that dollar was going to have to be stretched. It had to give the public the perception that this was a gigantic film, even though it's been mitigated by, by you know, sizable risks and sizable doubts about whether James Bond would remain relevant. I mean, one of the articles I, I found while I was researching this was a set report visit that was in Premiere magazine that came out around the time and it's really snippy really snippy and it goes to the fact that, that i mean the, the writer seemed to w go in with the perception that james bond was out of date and this is all really silly and that was not an uncommon viewpoint when goldeneye was being made so anyway going back to martin campbell the a, a meeting was arranged with him a new zealander the first time someone uh, from new zealand would direct a bond film um, by this stage john woo the mighty john woo had turned the job down um, but Campbell was more tempted and he signed up in 1994 with a race against time to get the film to the screen. And he, there, there was one demand he was quite insistent on in that he wanted the script locked before filming began. This has not happened so much in recent times on Bond movies. I mean, particularly Spectre. You go back to what Sam Mendes has said. If you go to the Team Deacons website, Sam Mendes talked about on Spectre about how he had to start shooting without the final third of the film determined. Campbell was in a position and also the Bond franchise was in a position where he would have none of that. He, he was able to ask for that. And again, walking in with lower expectations, Bond had the flexibility, really, that if need be, they could delay the film to get it right, which ultimately is what they did. Because Goldeneye was originally going to come out in the summer of 1995. But the the rewrites and the and the search for a director and the search for a bond, well, they pushed it back to the end of 1995. That was fairly quickly uh, agreed. Also, though, it's worth noting that that gave it a bit more distance from another film I've previously covered in film story on film stories podcast, True Lies, which had come out the summer of 1994, and I remember loads of press around the time of. of of true lies was this has taken on james bond's mantle this has changed the rules for james bond how is james bond going to react to that because of course by that point by the time true lies came out it was known that a new James Bond film was in the works, but True Lies, with a far bigger budget, was now playing on similar turf. And how on earth could Bond measure up to that? Well, one way they could try and change and adapt was in the casting of the new 007, which would give the film an initial blast of publicity, how much they weren't quite sure. Now, several names were considered. Mel Gibson was said to have been considered. I mean, there's lots of rumoury stuff online about how he was offered 15 million to uh, be James Bond. This was Mel Gibson at the height of his movie star powers as well in the 90s. Hugh Grant had risen to prominence uh, in the in the 90s, of course, and he was said to be on the list. Can't quite see it himself, but 
you know, fair dues. Um, Debbie McWilliams, she was the casting director and she's quoted in the Making of book as saying she considered 10 actors in all. Liam Neeson was believed to be one of them. Martin Campbell said to have at least interviewed Ray Fiennes, who'd sprung to uh, attention off the back of his stunning supporting, uh, supporting role in Schindler's List a year or two before. And it got to the point where Martin Campbell was interviewing potential James Bonds throughout May of 1994 and they needed to really they needed to make their call they really needed to make their decision now one person who didn't screen test for the role was Pierce Brosnan but of course Brosnan had form here it's a very well-known story that Brosnan was originally cast for the living daylights and then a commitment to the tv show Remington Steel meant he had to relinquish the role of Bond and in came Timothy Dalton this time I, I mean Albert R Broccoli was still keen on on Brosnan in fact he pushed for him United Artists were also pushing for him and ultimately Brosnan got the call on the 1st of June 1994 no screen test uh, he was committed to go and do a film with Robinson Crusoe that he had to fit in as well but this time he was definitely going to be James Bond he was in his early early 40s and he got the second chance that he dreamed of now, he had a very small period of time for the press launch. I think he had a day or so where he could be in London for it before he went off to shoot the Robinson Crusoe movie, sporting a beard that would not be part of his James Bond uh, look. And he took to the stage at the Regent Hotel in London. And this was uh, this was the re the official relaunch of Bond. Barbara Broccoli was nervous. Brosnan was being presented to the world for the first time as 007. And would people be interested? Well, any doubt that they were was was soon extinguished by that press conference and the aftermath of it. And Brosnan's talked in interviews since about how the following day he was in newspapers around the world. People had started digging into his private life. The casting of a new James Bond, at the very least, was still very big news. Whether the film would be, well, that was the challenge ahead. The rest of the casting came together once Brosnan was in place. Famke Janssen, she came to the production's attention off the back of uh, the, the film Lord of Illusions, based on the writing of Clive Barker. This was another U uh, United Artists movie that hadn't actually been released at that point, but obviously they were able to take a look. And she was she was cast in, uh, went in to read, um, did a scene with Brosnan in the, on the casino set and, and was duly cast in, in, in the film. Sean Bean, he came to attention. I mean, he, he bubbled up off the back of the TV show sharp in particular in the early 90s he was making when saturday comes at the at the time and he uh, he landed goldeneye for m there were a couple of considerations there but it, again it was john Kelly who suggested judy dench um others being in the frame but she was clearly the top choice and then desmond llewellyn with a crumpled suit would come along to provide continuity uh from uh previous to new bond uh further continuity behind the camera as well production designer peter lamont would come back for the 15th time he wasn't expecting to he thought martin campbell would bring in his own people he was delighted to get the call, not least because he'd been working on True Lies with James Cameron just before that. And also returning for the last time, sadly, was the, was the brilliant Derek Meddings, uh, who was doing the miniature work of which Goldeneye relies extensively on. Uh, Alan Cumming, he came in, Samantha Bot, the, the cast was rounded out. And by 16th of January 1995, 
filming was ready to begin. This was 10 months, 10, 11 months before the film was going to be in cinemas. As always with James Bond productions, it was going to be a mighty race against time. Now, when it came to actually shooting the film, the immediate problem was there was no room to do it. That Pinewood Studios is the natural home of James Bond movies. License to Kill hadn't been at Pinewood for an assortment of reasons. And now it was <laughs> none of God and I was going to be able to shoot there. It looked like too. The problem, ironically enough, was Sean Connery, the late Sean Connery. He was shooting a film called First Night uh, for director Jerry Zucker, co-starring Richard Gere. And that would that had booked up the stage at Pinewood so that was pressing ahead and so they happened upon an old Rolls-Royce factory in Leaveston around the Watford area just north of London now this was not a film studio but it was a massive space with which they would be able to do pretty much what they wanted in then came Peter Lamont and his team and they had about eight weeks to turn this old factory site into a film studio and that studio became Leaveston and Leaveston has in subsequently years now been taken on by Warner Brothers and it's where you find the Harry Potter studio tour now and it's Warner Brothers basically UK studio. Brosnan liked the fact that they were shooting somewhere completely different he talked about the fact that there were no ghosts of previous Bond movies on those sets although Roger Moore would pop in for a, a visit a couple of months well j just a few days before the end of production. The Leaveston site got the nickname Cubbywood after Albert R. Broccoli um, and, and shooting was ready to go ahead. Now, Goldeneye starts with a, a, a real a, a real statement of intense sequence, a massive bungee jump 220 uh, meters down down the Contra Dam in Switzerland which is where it's shot and Brosnan told the story of this bungee jump in that uh, aforementioned live stream I was talking about before and how they tested the they tested the jump with, uh, by basically cutting a tree log to the weight of the stuntman to give it a, and then attaching that to the end of the bungee rope dropping it and seeing what happens because there was a curve really to the dam it was a straight drop and the first couple of times they did it the tree smashed straight into the wall this led to uh, inevitable changes in how they went about this notably they had to look for the right weather they had to wait for exactly the right day because if it was too windy there was no way that this shot could be done it was Wayne Michaels who agreed to do the stunt several people turned the job down and in the end he had to do that he had to do that jump twice for the start of the film because as the point was made Martin Campbell makes the point that it wasn't just that he had to do the jump he had to do a bit of acting as he did it he has to pull a gun out of a holster midway through this tremendous fall um, he did it Pierce Brosnan did the close-up stuff and this incredible opening which is still regarded as one of the best stunts in a James Bond movie was duly in the can what wasn't in the can and it wouldn't be until the month after was Brosnan saying the iconic line for the first time Bond James Bond there you can have a Brummy version of that just for you and he'd been really nervous to say this he's uh, whether superstitious or not he, he refused to say it at the press conference he wouldn't say it he, he kind of the first time he 
says it with people listening was going to be on the casino set built at Leavesden when the, the sequence the sequence in question would be shot and he was quite nervous about it but and I, I've, I've written about this uh, more recently on the film stories website he did there, there was a, a little bit of a helping hand there because one of the extras in the background of the casino shot was um, Kate Gason who's the daughter of Eunice Gason who was opposite Sean Connery in a casino shot uh, in the first James Bond movie Dr No and what Kate Gason told Pierce Brosnan was just how nervous Sean Connery was saying the line for the first time to the point where the director of Dr No Terence Young um, basically got Eunice Gason to take Sean Connery to the pub at lunchtime Sean Connery had a, had a few snifters came back and was able to land the line but Brosnan was assured by the fact that if Connery was nervous then then fair dues I mean it, there's nothing wrong really with him being nervous either he duly got the shot in a very dialogue dialogue heavy day of filming on the 13th of February 1995 the production went to Monte Carlo went to Puerto Rico went to Russia went around the UK went to Epsom race uh, race course as well which doubled for St Petersburg airport St Petersburg as a location was causing problems the second unit of the film went there Barbara Broccoli went there as well but there were there were complexities with dealing with Russian authorities which meant a big tank chase that they intended to do well they decided the easiest thing to do was to recreate St Petersburg in um, in at Leavesden which is what they did to such a convincing way that some members of the Russian media were reporting that the Bond film had trashed quite a lot of their stuff when actually it had just been a very good replication matched up to second unit footage Martin Campbell's set is worth noting too well that was efficient um, that that it, uh, he certainly earned praise from Desmond Llewellyn for one he said uh, Llewellyn quoted in uh, in the some kind of hero book says um, we had more rehearsal time than I'd ever had in my life and Judy Judy Dench of course said the same um, Llewellyn said if we didn't get something right in the scene he'd reshoot it completely most of my other directors would cut around and insert and not but not him uh, Llewellyn as always he had his lines written out on cue cards for him that Michael Wilson was holding up but uh, Brosnan too talked about the, the, the intensity of shooting Goldeneye and how Campbell marshalled it and it sounded like it was it was quite testing at times but there does seem to be quite a lot of mutual respect going on between the actors and the director now editing as is the norm was underway as Goldeneye was still shooting Terry Rawlings was the editor of this one filming finally wrapped up on June the 2nd with the movie set to premiere in November and that was a real race against time to get the film ready um, this is the era as I say oftentimes where film was still distributed in cans of film so uh, a more time intensive process to re to duplicate that film to put transport the cans all around the country in the quantities required while uh, the editing was going on it's worth noting that an offer went into legendary composer John Barry he's got no shortage of form with the James Bond saga after all to score the new movie but he turned this one down off the back of his work with Luke Besson on films like Leon uh, in came Eric Serra to do the film and it's quite a divisive score that he put together John Altman came in and did some work on it as well when it came to the title song the the offer went to the Rolling Stones to see if they wanted to record the title song to Goldeneye they turned that down and instead they uh, the producers went with a song written by Bono and the Edge sung by Tina Turner that was the one that ultimately uh, that is the title 
title track there's another song running over the end credits as well but the music was was in place now there was still a little bit of toing and froing that uh, the writers guild of america arbitrated on the screen credits and denied michael france anything other than a story by credit which he wasn't really best pleased with he's talked about that since there was also a battle with the ratings board as well in that th this bond had to and mid 90s it wasn't quite as crucial as as it perhaps is now in blockbuster cinema but they, they wanted this to go out with a pg-13 in the us and a 12a in the uk uh, or a 12 in the uk as it was then this did require some jiggery pokery though and cuts had to be made to the film to to basically get that rating that bullet impacts were taken out some deaths were cut back and the the movie i, I mean subsequently in the us it's still the I, I understand it's still the cut version that you can buy in the uk finally the disc version was uh the, the cuts were reinstated i think in the 2000s so the disc version that you can get here now is 15 certificate but when it came out it got the 12 that they were after now by this stage a first test screening had taken place in july of 1995 just a month after filming had finished the world the, the word on the movie was good and the word from cubby broccoli was good too that his health by this stage was in real decline but he saw the rushes he was impressed with what he saw and he was impressed with pierce brosnan as james bond as well as the rest of the world ultimately would be too unusually for a bond movie this one debuted in the u.s first that it had its uh, its u.s premiere on the 13th of november 1995 opening on the 17th uh just four days later the uk premiere wouldn't be till over a week later on the 21st of november and it got its wide release in the uk on the 24th of november uh pretty much every bond film since has reversed that and the reviews were really quite good certainly the reviews for brosnan were was people were taken with the fact that he was a lighter James Bond than Timothy Dalton had been. Um, but also there was a real acceptance that this was a Bond series that had modernised, that had found a new place in the world. And that was a very, very tricky uphill task that it, it faced. Crucially, too, the film was a box office success. And this was a box office success of the ilk the James Bond series hadn't seen for a long time. That its opening weekend in America... Well, it opened to $26 million, um, which by mid-90s standards was great anyway. But by the standards of the goal, uh, of the Bond films, well, that was really something. To put it into context, the uh, the number two film of that week was Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. So Goldeneye knocked that down to uh, from the top spot. The American President opened at three. It Takes Two was at four. Get Shorty at five. Others in there. Copycat, Home for the Holidays, Seven was still around now and then. Also in there. But... But the film, whilst it would go on to gross over $100 million in, in the US, it just crept over that. In the UK, well, it was even more successful. And this was very much that the James Bond film was back up and running. Its worldwide gross in the end would be $352 million, And that's pretty much grown with every movie since, barring one or two exceptions. But the, the, the Bond was now not just back, but Bond was a huge blockbuster franchise. And also, it's worth noting, a really good Nintendo 64 game regarded as a bit of a classic. For all concerned, well, Derek Meddings would, would not see the the end, uh, the, the final cut of the movie. He died in post-production and the film is dedicated to him and his incredible work. And Martin Campbell paid tribute to the fact that they couldn't have realised what they wanted to do on Golden Eye. 
in, a, in an era where computer effects were very much in their infancy without Meddings's input. Campbell um, w- declined the chance to return to direct. Uh, at least he wouldn't until Daniel Craig came along and Casino Royale was uh, was was greenlit. I'll come to that in a future podcast. Brosnan, he would move on just two years later. Tomorrow Never Dies would be on the screen. In between the release of Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, Albert R. Broccoli sadly passed away. Since then, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson have taken the Bond series forward. I will come to the story of Tomorrow Never Dies also in a future podcast. But in terms of a franchise reboot, when people look at that, what was achieved with Goldeneye, what, 25 years on, really is quite something. Which brings me to the halfway point of this latest film stories. I am a fully independent publisher, so can I ask favours, please? Uh, if you like this podcast, please do subscribe at your podcast repository of choice. It does make a difference to indies like me. Likewise, if you can leave ideally a hugely positive review, that would be amazing. Also, if you'd be kind enough to buy my magazines or spread the word of them, that would be terrific as well. Go to store.filmstories.co.uk. I've just sent to print the 21st issue of Film Stories magazine, which is now two years old which makes me feel very old all the back issues of christmas subscription deals all sorts on on the website now and with that i'm going to come to the second of the two films i'm talking about in this episode i'll play you a clip come to the story the other side of this who are your influences uh barry manilow who are your influences Joan Bias, uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, Wings, Bikeman Turner, Overdrive, Bandau Ballet, Soft Cell, Sinead O'Connor, Bob Bedford Night, Trip to a Candy Shop, where? Hi, I've come about the audition. Led Zeppelin, uh, Billy and the Bollocks. You too? That then was a clip from 1991's The Commitments, directed by Alan Parker, based on the novel by Roddy Doyle. A screenplay by Dick Clement, Ian Lafrene and Roddy Doyle. The cast included um, primarily unknowns at the time. Robert Arkins, Michael O'Hearn, Angeline Ball, Maria Doyle Kennedy, Dave Finnegan, Brona Gallagher, Cole Meany in there, Glenn Hansard, uh, Johnny Murphy as Joey the Lips Fagan, um, and, and some of the cores. I'll be, coming, <laughs> I'll be coming to them shortly. Now, the story of this one, well, it goes back to Roddy Doyle's novel he well to call it a novel is probably overselling it a bit novella I think most have agreed to call it because he wrote a very slim book in 1987 The Commitments and what Doyle wanted to do with that book well he's a teacher and he wanted to write a film about uh, basically a band bringing a, a bunch of young characters together and he wanted a lot of characters in his film and as a consequence that influenced the kind of band that he wanted to put in the book he decided he wanted it to be a soul band because that would allow it to be much bigger that would allow him to bring more characters in the book was published in 1987 and was read by several people um one of whom was producer by the name of roger randall cutler who'd had a success with the film dance with a stranger at this point and he optioned the novella fairly quickly with a view of turning it into a movie now that novella he then passed on to the writing duo of dick clement and ian lafrenay and uh, it went to it went to lafrenay first who passed it to clement uh, they'd 
got porridge and the likely lads their name at this point they've broken into films with the film water for instance and they will go on to do the bank job which i've talked about them before on this podcast and cutler told them that at this point it was going to be a very low budget film done on a shoestring as a consequence the script would have to be done on the cheap but they agreed because they loved it they liked the they thought the dialogue and the characters made up for the lack of plot and and they laughed heavily at the book when they read it but also what they had in their corner at that point was no need for the money because they'd done a deal with a man called bill mark a texas financier and mark was putting together a 30 million dollar-ish production company with backing from overseas investors mysterious overseas investors as it would happen and he wanted dick and ian on board and they talk about this in their in their memoir which i mean is well well worth digging out it's called more than likely and the, the commitment seemed like just the kind of project that could film form part of this new film fund that they suddenly had access to and so they told bill mark they wanted to write the screenplay they as to quote from the book we flew back to los angeles on pan am and then they talk about introducing the project to alan parker now the the late director alan parker terrific director of course he had fame to his name at this point he'd done the u2 movie um he was making the film come see the paradise and and mississippi burning uh he was he was dealing with very big hollywood productions really at this stage in his career um but they had they had lunch with alan parker in hollywood uh, they told alan parker about the fact that bill mark given them this basically development fund they could work with and that they had quote a sudden and unexpected ability to finance movies when we mentioned the commitments his eyes lit up why don't i do that one said parker and there it was it was that simple now it's worth noting at the time that alan parker i mean he'd been offered uh, evita a few years before which he wouldn't do for some time to come uh, but he was also due to do the les miserables movie which didn't come to pass at that point but he opted to uh, he opted to do the commitments he wanted to do this he could he'd been fighting logistical problems on the films he'd been making in america and he also he picked up that novella and talked about how he laughed out loud at the book and kind of figured people might laugh out loud at the film as well so bill mark was happy because now there's an oscar nominated director there's a project and and this this was something they could press ahead with and, and on they went and the problem is bill mark got vega and vega and vega and getting in tongue in contact with him was trickier for dick clement and ian lafrenet that the funding to they kept being told that the funding to finance movies was apparently still there they were ended up communicating a lot of the time with him via fax of these pre-internet times of course um parker confirmed that he wanted in but bill mark kept disappearing at the point they needed him so the suspicions of clement and lafrenet would well, they were on the up and over the course of two months they were chasing backwards and forwards messages going backwards and forth but they finally met him in an office in london in a posh boardroom that they were reassured by they were less reassured when they went back the following day to follow up and he wasn't there and they suspected um that he'd basically rented the office for the day bill mark if you're listening feel free to put your side of the story i'm presenting these as allegations call your lawyers off so at this point clement and lafrenet they they were just every alarm bell was going this had cost them money to get to this point and they decided it was the cut your losses time that bit while mark was still insistent he could get the funding for the film 
Um, a, a friend of Lafrene and Clement by the name of Mark Abraham, well, he was a writer who'd just been uh, started working with a new company that had been set up called Beacon Pictures, didn't have anywhere near the vast reservoirs of money, but their money actually existed. So, you know, quid pro quo. It, Beacon was looking for films. The name of the commitments was dropped and an offer came in and that was the one that All Concerned decided to go with. They decided to cut their many losses and go with a much lower but far more reliable offer. Um, Fox would pick up the American rights to the film. It's going to cost around $10 million to make this. and uh, But part and parcel of, it, of the film being done on a relatively low budget was Alan Parker, for his part, would get creative control. With that in mind, off they went to work on the script. That Roddy Doyle penned the original draft of the script. Then in came uh, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrene. They put together their version of it. And then they met up with Alan Parker in Dublin to write the final draft. And they talk in their memoir about how Parker challenged them right from the first scene. And how Parker said, you've put it in house, which is picturesque and on the sea. Movies establish their credentials in the first five minutes, argued Parker. We need to begin with something gritty and working class um and and the setting of the commitments was or well, it's barrytown is is the given setting but it was going to be filmed in and around dublin it was going to be a working class story of people trying to escape their lives really through music and whilst parker wasn't irish he he did grow up working class and really could relate to the fact of trying to make something more for themselves uh, but through through music in this particular case the market that i just talked about that would need to be specially staged for the movie um but I'm jumping a little bit ahead because then Alan Parker went to see the bands playing soul in Dublin that he'd worked out fairly as uh, they weren't working on a huge budget. So as a consequence, they weren't going to get big movie stars. So I'll come to that shortly. And so it was going to be a cast of unknowns for this one. And he worked out that the best way round is rather than teaching actors to be musicians, he's better off finding primarily musicians and trying to get them to be actors. He, he described it as having to cast the film he talks about extensively on the uh, excellent uh, blu-ray release that came out a couple of years ago he talks about authenticity being the absolute key for this one uh, in an interview with the new york times at the time actually he said ultimately the people that cast had to be pretty close to the kinds of personalities they already had so they're not playing roles outside of themselves he could see the limitations of trying to turn musicians into actors and thus wanted them to act really as little as he could get away with he toured dublin watching uh, dozens possibly hundreds of bands um in doing so and he was also at the same point uh narrowing down the list of the songs that he wanted in the movie he got it down first of all a list of 70 possible songs took them into rehearsal before narrowing them down to the songs that we end up with with the film and then it was the case of the auditions and the auditions were were pretty open i mean parker talks about how it was the women who were more gutsy than the guys on the whole in the auditions he talks too about uh, and how they found andrew strong who takes on the role of deco in the movie that a, an irish soul singer by the name of rob song was being used to help with the auditions and he happened to bring along his son Andrew and uh, as it was described uh, Andrew uh, Andrew Strong sang for them and it was a voice that shouldn't have come out of a 16 year old and at this point Robert Arkins was in line to take the role of Deco the lead singer of the commitments but Andrew Strong's performance changed everything. So Arkins found himself in the role of Jimmy Rabbit and, and as a consequence doesn't actually sing in the movie, which is why he gets to sing the song that's over the opening credits of the film. 
Clement and Lafrene, once they saw Strom, they would rewrite the script and change the character of Deco quite a lot to accommodate the fact that th this actor had come, this singer had come in and just completely uh, sideswiped them in terms of the expectation of what they had and what they could do really. The open call auditions took place in the town, uh, town hall at Dublin. Uh, 1,500 people turned up playing all sorts of instruments. Uh, around 300, a short list of 300 was was then put together. And he and Parker had to pick 10 people from those. But also he would use some of the people who didn't make it uh, in the background of the film and you know the audition scenes that you see in the movie as well. He he would he would use some people in and around that. The the auditions weren't as as Clement and Lafrenet talk about weren't actually that different from what you see for the auditions in the film. And there's the, for instance, I mean, they describe them as a riotous succession of actors, musicians, misfits, and the unemployed parading their talents and pedigrees. Uh, a sixty-ish male showed up for the part of horn-playing veteran Joey the Lips. He held a stained, battered trumpet in his hand, and Alan Parker asked him how long he'd been playing, and and quote the old he replied i bought it on the way here now there had been pressure in the midst of it all not least because they wanted to sell this film in america to add a movie star to the lineup so the character of joey the lips actually bob hoskins was considered at that at one point michael kane's name was also mentioned now van morrison was sent a script and agreed to have a meeting about the role as well and at that meeting, well, it didn't really go well. And the, the meeting, he's, Van Morrison's manager direct, apparently demanded breakfast before there'd even been a hello. And quote, uh, quote, Van thought it would make more, much more sense if the kids played his music, not soul. And the, 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 going back to Clement and Lafrenet talking about this, they said perhaps he had a valid point. But as he also found our script, quote, shite, unquote, there didn't seem much point pursuing the issue. Although Van Morrison apparently offered his music to the film. Film, but the idea of using a star name at that point uh, and Michael Caine had been mentioned as well but the idea of using a star name well it was quietly dropped at that point once the cast was in place there were five weeks of rehearsals ahead and it was primarily musicians there were only a couple of people who'd acted before so Johnny Murphy stage actor came in to play jo uh, Joey the Lips Carl Meany who'd been working with Parker on Come See the Paradise which he'd made immediately before the commitments he was in and Broder Gallagher had done some acting work as well Lafrené talks about how he wishes they could turn back time to be in the Dublin rehearsal room for the first time the script was read and then how everyone went to the pub later that night the jokes were coming thick and fast and the and the camaraderie really of, of the movie was quickly coming together this was not going to be a film set with lots of trailers and people working in luxury they were they were going to have to work hard and this was a cast and crew that were going to be milling around together for uh, for several weeks during the first week of reading and rehearsal um what one trick parker did just to try and make the the new the new cast feel less self-conscious was he asked them to keep switching the scripts and read other people's roles even if it meant they were reading the roles of different gender just to try and put a bit more fun and a bit more challenge into the process and it also allowed Cle Clement and Lafrené sat in on that process and would rewrite as as actors stroke musicians became more and more uh, more and more familiar with their roles and it finally got to a point where filming was ready to begin on the 27th of August 1990 and this was sometime still before the release of the movie ironically they had more of a build-up on the commitments than they did on Goldeneye 
because he was working with untrained actors and this goes to an interview uh, that the interview that Parker gave to the New York Times he it, it, it describes how Parker developed a directing strategy and he said every single line every single movement every single thing you're doing is to encourage them to be themselves so they don't know they're acting and so Arkins talks, Robert Arkins talked about this and said, he was asked, did Alan Parker give him any tips on acting? And he said, no, he let me do it himself. Much the approval of Parker, who overheard him saying that. Um, Parker would say he worked harder with uh, with Arkins than anyone else because he saw him as the pivotal character. But there was lots of effort be- behind the scenes to make it look as natural as it all did. In particular, with the music that Parker had a lot of experience filming music, of course, and and this would not be the last time he did it on film either. But he wanted to shoot the music live. He knew to make it feel real, he had to do it that way. And there were around 60 musical cues in all in the film. And there was a shadow band on hand to perform the songs as they should be, to work with the actors as well. But he knew if this film was going to be raw, if it's going to be gutsy, um, that they couldn't be a backing track. He talks about this extensively on that disc release I was talking about and that it had to be done for real which is duly what happened and in all the film would then shoot um, as, as well as as well as those musical numbers it would shoot in 44 different locations around Dublin um, there are very few sets most of it is location um, that uh, Jimmy Rabbit's house you see in the film was built a small set was built in a Dublin studio for that but the idea was take it take it around the city and, and and put that on screen which Julie what happened and ultimately the rap party would be a raucous affair celebrating the end of production it was held in Dublin and the commitments performed a set as as they did when the film went and premiered in New York and Los Angeles and at the Los Angeles premiere Wilson Pickett joined them for a couple of numbers as well one story about the Los Angeles premiere that uh, Clement and Lafrene talk about is that Alan Parker held a party for the cast and crew in his Los Angeles home and uh, uh, to quote the book a memorable moment came after heartthrob Liam Neeson as he was described then joined the girls in the jacuzzi and the drink flowed Brona Gallagher raised us glass to the sun-bleached California sky I can't trucking believe this she sort of said I'm drinking tequila in a hot tub in Hollywood and Liam Neeson has his hand on me thigh yet even in post-production just to get to the point where they could debut the film in Los Angeles it had taken a lot of work to get there not least in the promotion of the movie that one of the things that Fox wanted to do was was stage basically a platform release in the US if you're not familiar with the term this means instead of you blanket book your film onto thousands of screens you build it up in a number of cities you have to strike fewer prints as a result it's more economical but it's absolutely reliant as a consequence on word of mouth and thus with the film not due to uh, not due to open until the summer of 1991 what happened was uh, 20th Century Fox in the US they started quietly promoting it in February of 91 they started arranging preview screenings in key cities around the US in the April of that year and then they kind of they, they well, they, they tried to take advantage of the music and not unreasonably so and so they were working with radio stations and DJs and really putting across the the, the strong musical side of the movie 
ultimately the film would debut in the i mean it would debut in america on the 6th of august 1991 in hollywood and then it would get a wide release the week after and that platform release would build from that point the uk we wouldn't actually get the film until uh, a month or two later that the british release of the movie was the 4th of october same date as the irish release of it and the reviews for this one well they were good they were good that the the sheer heart really of the film was deemed to be very much on screen the music too came in inevitably for uh, sizable acclaim in fact the soundtrack album of the commitments would go on to be a bestseller to the point where a volume two would follow not long afterwards but also there was general satisfaction with the movie from those who'd made it and alan uh, alan parker talked to robert emery for the book the directors take three and he said i like the commitments because i enjoyed doing it if it turned out to be a really rotten film it wouldn't it wouldn't have mattered to me because i had such a good time doing it but i think it's nice for what it is and i think that a lot of people have tried to copy it perhaps not satisfactorily it has vitality and energy and honesty <clears throat> and i think i think it's quite a raw film i was trying to be unpretentious as i possibly could be as an artist in doing it the fact that i enjoyed doing it so much i think it does have a good spirit the spirit comes from the kids themselves and hopefully that shows up on the screen it, it showed up afterwards as well in that the young cast well there, there was demand for them to go out and perform and Andrew Strong would go off and do solo touring and the commitments have done various gigs and they did come back together for gigs as well a bit more recently but also it helped launch musical careers too that uh, all four members of the cause for instance had small parts in the commitments it was the first time they'd worked together and the music coordinator of the commitments a man called John Hughes but not that one became the cause's manager glenn hansard meanwhile well he'd apparently struggled to get on with alan parker on the set of the film but years later he would become an oscar winner that he would uh, share the oscar for best song for the film once in which he co-starred that would become a broadway and west end hit john carney wrote and produced that movie um in terms of the commitments itself well that was a box office uh, success too against the limitations of its budget we're not talking goldeneye level but the film in america alone would go on and do about 14 million dollars it was it, it was a small release by the standards of um of, of movies i mean terminator 2 was still at the box office by the time uh, the commitments made it into american cinemas but it's grown and grown and grown subsequent to its consequence to its release as well and whilst I, I think it's probably too popular to call it a cult hit it's one that regularly gets airing and regularly gets new catalog releases as well it would also get an oscar nomination for best film editing and the musical legacy of it goes on there was talk at one point about doing a sequel um harvey weinstein now convicted rapist in two in january 2000 picked up the screen rights for um for a sequel to the commitments and commissioned a script to make a commitments to but that would have seen the band going uh, on tour in america with new band members that never happened what did happen in the more immediate aftermath of the first film was a baritone trilogy based on Roddy Doyle's books so the snapper and the van they would make it to the screen they'd be quite different films from the commitments um, and they would be BBC productions that debuted on television and then there was the 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 musical of the commitments which uh, originally uh, Clement and Lafrenet wanted to write it but ultimately Roddy Doyle had the rights to this and he would write the book for a stage musical of the commitments which would go on to be a sizable success as well 
which all leads really to a, a film made on a modest budget, made with real heart, that's had a sizable legacy to it and continues to have a sizable legacy to it. And it's telling, I mean, we lost uh, Sir Alan Parker earlier this year as this has been recorded and, and a very sad loss too. And it's telling that in amongst his, his extensive range of film credits, the commitments kept coming up as one that was particularly loved. I think it's a fine tribute to him and it's telling that it's the film that he enjoyed he would say he enjoyed doing the most i really think it's a smashing piece of work too and it's always always good value for a sing song as well which brings me to the end of this latest episode of film stories you can find far more of my waffling than you ever want to hear on twitter at simon brew the whole film stories project at film stories pod but also our website filmstories.co.uk where we're putting up every weekday new film stories features and news stories and reviews and all sorts of mayhem going on there you can find us uh, on youtube at youtube.com slash film stories on facebook at facebook.com slash film stories online and you can buy our entire back catalogue of magazines and subscriptions that's film stories magazine film stories julia magazine at store.filmstories.co.uk all that leads me to say is as always the most important thing is you that you're okay that you look after yourself i thank you so much for listening and thank you for supporting my work Uh, i'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories until then you all take care of yourselves take care bye-bye 